0: The old saying goes, if March comes in like a lion, it goes out like a lamb. Now, this year, March certainly came in like a lion. The month kicked off with a ferocious winter storm. But just how it will go out is TBD, to be determined. Although so far, it's looking pretty good. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Coming up on this morning's show, we're having some fun with that phrase in like a lion, out like a lamb. All of our segments relate to lions and lambs in one way or another. From a closer look at Patience and Fortitude, the Marble Lions that stand guard outside the New York Public Library at Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street, to a behind-the-scenes view of the Lambs Club, the nation's first professional theatrical club, based in Manhattan. Lions and lambs, oh my, this morning on Cityscape. Glad you're with us. We begin this morning with a look at the saying itself, if March comes in like a lion, it goes out like a lamb. Where did it originate? Patrick DiGesto was a science and technology writer here in New York City. We asked him to look into
1: it for us. It came from England where it doesn't happen. There's absolutely no correlation between if there's stormy weather at the beginning of March, it'll be calmer at the end of March. It's just that March itself is the most extreme month, especially here in the Northern Hemisphere, bordering on the Atlantic Ocean, especially here in the in the New York area. March is the most extreme month we've got. So if we
0: are to believe this saying in its original meaning then we're in
1: the clear because it snowed earlier this month. Yeah, exactly. We we had a giant snowstorm. I think it was the biggest uh, of, of the season at the beginning of March. That doesn't prove anything, though. Theoretically, I mean, we've seen it snow here in New York. We've seen it snow in April. We've also seen 90 degrees in April. Generally, the time where both extremes can happen is right here in March. We've experienced, let's say, the you know, first day of spring, We've experienced first days of spring where it snowed, where it was miserable, and we've had first days of spring where it was the most beautiful day you have ever seen, and neither of those days are unusual. Both can happen in March.
0: Now, doesn't this saying also have astrological meaning because Leo is up there in the sky? There,
1: There is that story that at the beginning of March, Leo, the, the constellation Leo the Lion, is very bright and prominent in the 8 o'clock sky. By the end of March, the constellation Aries the Ram, also could be Aries the Sheep or the Lamb, is setting at exactly 8 o'clock at night, just as the sun is going down at the end of March. So it comes in with a bright lion constellation and goes out with a sheep constellation. That's true. I don't necessarily know if there's a connection, or, or more precisely, it might be a back connection oh, look, there's a lion, and oh, look, there's a lamb. You know, it, the, the story is true. I don't know how, how true that is. I think it applies more to the weather itself. Early March is generally stormy. Late March does tend to be a little more spring-like. Patrick, thank you so much for
0: coming in and clearing none of this up for us. <laughs> thank you very much. Patrick DeJusto is a science and technology writer in New York City. As we continue on with our lions and lambs theme this morning, we pay a visit to the Bronx Zoo to meet some real-life lions and lambs and to the people who care for them.
2: My name is Glenn Ferguson. and I'm an assistant mammal supervisor in the mammal department here at the Bronx Zoo. We're standing in front of the uh, African Plains, the lion exhibit, which is part of our predator-prey exhibit in Africa, which lions are the central part of it, but we also have Thompson's gazelle, ayala and zebra. Now, zebra and gazelle, lions feed on them, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Not here, but uh, in the wild. So they're separated here. Yes, we always, we like our gazelle and zebra, so we, we keep them uh, safe from our lions. How many lions do you have here? Currently, we have a male and a female. The female's about uh, four years old. and The male's uh, just short of seven years old. You'll see them both out on exhibit together. They get along very well. What is the average lifespan of a lion? In the wild, um, for a female, 10 to 15 years. Um, A male, a little bit shorter than that. In captivity, though, they'll be a little bit longer, closer to 20 years, because of nutrition and how well we uh, take care of them.
0: Are these two amorous?
2: Yes, very. She's a very flirtatious female at times, and he's a very good male. He's a very appropriate male, and uh, he likes to stick close to her. Uh, and she likes to annoy him and uh push him around and flirt with them and but uh they're both very good animals since they're not feeding on the zebra and gazelle here at the zoo, what do you feed them It's a packaged carnivore diet specifically for felines, so we know uh it's vitamin fortified we know exactly what's going into them each day, and we can uh we know the specific amounts we also give uh bonus uh treats like uh they'll get knuckle bones. Uh, that'll beef knuckle bones we will also get a um, you know chicken and stuff like that as well rabbit sometimes as bonus treats but generally it's the fortified uh, feline diet
0: did these lions grow up here in
2: the Bronx they've done a bit of their growing up here but they uh, weren't born here one came from Cheyenne Mountain Zoo and the other was from Columbus I believe they've been here for two to three years the female came in she was pretty young she was still pretty little now but she's uh she's full grown now and the male was uh male was a young male but pretty much full grown when he first came in but he's a big pretty male now are lions endangered in the wild actually lions do pretty well in the wild being the top of the food chain they're doing pretty well compared to some of the other predators like cheetahs and uh you know, African wild dogs, some of the other animals that they compete with.
0: One big problem for wildlife is a loss of habitat. Are we seeing that with lions anywhere in the world?
2: You see problems with that with just about every species anywhere. It's loss of habitat plus just our personal encroachment and then how we uh, we conflict with them, the problems they may cause for uh, human livestock, nomads with their with their animals and then ranchers not wanting lions around their uh, livestock and uh, there's plenty of conflict that happens there.
0: Lions generally live in prides not here though there are only two so you wouldn't call
2: it a pride would you? Well I think technically it's still it's a small pride but it's still a pride I think Moasi, our male would like to think of it as his own pride Um, and they're doing their part to create more so uh, I'm sure we'll have a bigger pride eventually so
0: did you aspire to be a lion keeper
2: i've always loved zoos Uh, since i was you know three or four years old i used to go to the zoo all the time always wanted to uh, work at a zoo went to school and got my zoology degree and i've been here at the bronx for eight years what are some of the most common questions you get about lions most of the time it's uh what time do you feed them can we see it And can you wake them up? Because lions sleep naturally, both in captivity and in the wild. They sleep about 20 hours a day. They walk around for about two hours a day naturally. So, of course, it occurs in captivity as well. And then they normally eat for about an hour. And that's pretty much their day in the wild. So in captivity where they don't even have to do the walking around to grab the hunting. We do some stuff. We enrich the animals to give them different things to sniff around in their exhibit, different treats to find we do stuff like that to keep them active keep them moving around but they're always going to get their food so they don't have to uh, spend as much time up and running around as what they do in the wild but we do with a lot of training and enrichment we keep them uh, busy and active and people a lot of times when people come and see them they expect them to be tackling a zebra which is what they see on the nature channel but uh, really what's most natural for them is to be lounging out in the sun like a lot of us would like to do on most days
0: the male lion has what's called a mane does that serve any purpose uh
2: yes i've heard a couple studies and the the big thing about a mane a lot of time uh a male that's well uh, has really good nutrition so he's hunting well he has a pride that's hunting well for him he's eating well typically has a darker fuller mane and that shows his females how good he is basically so it's it's the same it, it Similar to us, you know, dressing up and going out and showing off. uh, He's impressing his females by showing how healthy he is, and that's what uh, a mane can do. So when you see a nice, dark, full mane, it means it's a nice, healthy animal.
0: What has surprised you most about working with these lions, about their
2: behavior or anything else? They are very much big cats. You you see the same behaviors, the same expressions that you see uh, in your house cats. But they are definitely wild animals. They're, um, and the, the other big thing the big uh, is when you're right next to them, no matter how close you get to them, uh, looking at them on exhibit, when you're right next to them, they're a lot bigger than they always seem when they're a little ways away from you. They're very impressive animals, very powerful animals.
0: I thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Glenn Ferguson helps to take care of the lions at the Bronx Zoo. While we didn't find any lambs at the zoo, we did come across the next best thing, sheep. Surprisingly quiet sheep. Not one made a peep, let alone a baa. while we learned all about them from the zoo's Diana Tancredi.
3: We have uh, several different breeds of sheep. Uh, we have some Dorset sheep and some Suffolk sheep, and then also some Jacob Fordhorn sheep.
0: How many different breeds of sheep are there?
3: Not entirely sure, but I can say a lot with confidence.
0: <laughs> and what separates them? What makes them different?
3: Um, sheep were domesticated... Uh, about over 10,000 years ago, roughly. Uh, They're separated by um, meat quality, hair, coat, color, quality, um, different characteristics. Some are are better able to subsist in hilly areas, some down on the flatlands. Um, They're all grazers, so they can eat pretty much anything. They're pretty hardy animals, um, fairly weather tolerant. Um, like the Jacobs four-horned are a little, considered a little bit more of a rare breed, a little closer to their wild ancestors. But generally, sheep all have a fairly easygoing nature. They tend to flock together. And, uh, they have a great response to, uh, predators. So they, they tend, that's what the flocking action is for, to keep predators, uh, away and to, you know, sort of safety in numbers.
0: So they're protecting themselves?
3: As best as a sheep can, they, uh. Uh, other than sort of running, there's, they're not very aggressive animals. Um, they're known for, for their fairly gentle n- nature. Um, not too much personality distinction. They tend to act very much alike. The flock can sort of act as one.
0: That being said, are they smart animals?
3: I would have to say that they're as smart as they need to be. And I'm gonna leave it at that.
0: Nicely put. <laughs> I understand that sheep have a great sense of hearing.
3: It's beneficial for them to hear well. Obviously, they need to hear if something's sneaking up on them. It doesn't come into too much use here at the Children's Zoo a little bit, and they're pretty well taken care of. Uh, but they still do hold a lot of the basic sheep characteristics. They will flock together. They do that. You can't separate them. You know, if you take one out it's mayhem they get very upset they like to be with their buddies a little different like our goats are very closely related to sheep but uh, personality wise very different you know goats tend to be able to be separated a little more easily they're not quite they don't flock quite as much they're not as uh, shy or scared of other things i should say
0: sheep though like goats could have horns am i right
3: some are bred with horns some are some are have been bred down and uh, for the characteristics of not having horns um, like uh, jacob sheep for instance can have uh, uh, they're called four horned sheep but some have two horns some have four horns some can even have six horns so it just depends really depends on the breed
0: now this is a children's zoo what are some of the questions that kids ask about the sheep
3: not too much they come, they like to come, they like to pet them, they like to feed them. Uh, our Children's Zoo is a great uh, first introduction to domestic animals, for especially for inner-city kids. So a lot of kids that come here, especially the younger ones, it's their first time meeting a sheep, a duck, a chicken, a goat, whatever. Um, so basically the reaction is, wow, a sheep, can I touch it? Can I pet it? Can I feed it? And of course we say, sure, come on over.
0: Perhaps it's a good thing that sheep can't read because right above... The fencing here is a sign that says sheep are bred for meat or their dense hair called wool now I would imagine it's not a big deal to have your hair shaved, but the meat part
3: yeah the the meat part so it's so this goes back to the smart question about sheep um, we're glad they can't read and basically uh, we we don't eat our sheep um, we do get them shorn uh, they will they will be sheared for the season we do it once a year they are Bread for meat, hence the lamb and the mutton. You know, if you have leg of lamb and mutton, um, we just put those signs up there for the various animals to show just sort of how closely they've been related to humans and what their uses have been. Doesn't necessarily mean I advocate going out and eating one.
0: Diana, thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much for talking to me. Had a great time. Come on in, visit us.
0: Diana Tancredi helps to run the Children's Zoo at the Bronx Zoo. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. In honor of March, this week's show has a lions and lambs theme. Next on the show, we pay a visit to are perhaps New York City's most famous lions, Patience and Fortitude. They, of course, stand guard outside the New York Public Library at Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street in Manhattan. The library's chief of art information resources, Clayton Kirking, gave us the lowdown on the larger-than-life cats.
4: Right now we're in front of the Forty Second and Fifth Street, Fifth uh, Avenue building, of the New York Public Library, standing next to Patience, who is the southernmost lion in front of the uh, in front of the portico of the library.
0: I'm glad that you named Patience here because I couldn't tell the difference which one was Patience and which one was Fortitude. They look so alike.
4: <laughs> well, you have to know which is north and south, actually, and the names w- were applied. Some say by uh, the mayor uh, uh, Laguardia in the thirties at a time of the great, during the Great Depression when he thought the, 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 the citizens of the city needed patience and fortitude. And whether or not that's true, it kind of has stuck. And uh, so the southernmost line is patience and the one to the north is fortitude.
0: And how appropriate today. New Yorkers, of course, today in this economic climate
4: need patience and fortitude. They certainly do, and so I think that name is it's here to stay.
0: Patience and Fortitude, though not the original names of these lions, these lions were once called something else, right?
4: The history of the lions is very interesting. That they were they were not immediately recognized as the great symbols of the library or of the city of New York. Um, and it is, early in the history of the library, they were actually called Leo Astor and Leo Lennox for Astor and Lennox, the two great founders of the public library. And uh, that name stuck until Patience and Fortitude came forth in the 30s or 40s sometime yeah who designed these lions the original sculptures were by edward clark potter uh who is a very uh, well known a sculptor of animals uh, uh, in the uh, late 19th but early early 20th century. They were actually carved by the Picciarelli brothers, who were a f- a brother, six brothers from Italy, who came to the United States in uh, 1888 with their father and founded a, a, a marble carving studio. And they actually carved much of the great public sculpture in the in the country, including the Lincoln Memorial, Uh, in Washington, D.C.
0: I understand that their facility was in Mott Haven in the Bronx.
4: That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, they were, in the, I think, on 142nd Street. And sadly, after the death of the last brother, there very little was saved of their of their studio over their records. But but the their, the public sculpture is and the, is really a record of what they produced.
0: So, just how long have patience and fortitude been keeping watch over the New York Public Library?
4: They were installed just before the library opened in uh, May of 1911. There were plaster casts here in place before the opening. And uh, it's interesting that immediately there was all sorts of controversy about the lions—that they were badly drawn, that they were inappropriate to uh, that there should have been an American beast uh, guarding this uh, edifice instead of an, instead of uh, uh, something that was associated with Africa and more classically with with Europeans uh, architecture and architectural decoration. That controversy actually lasted a number of years, but as much as there was controversy about the sculptures, they've become very popular among the populace of the city very quickly.
0: They are now trademarked by the library, right? They're also the library's mascot.
4: They're the library's mascots. The library and everything connected to it is a national monument, and uh, these sculptures were were completely uh, conserved and restored in 2004. Over time, the the marble had deteriorated somewhat. A couple cracks had uh, occurred because of the freezing and cooling. And marble is is a very durable material, but it doesn't over time do well in with acid rain, air pollution, freezing, cooling, uh, and uh, and tourists crawling all over the sculptures. But they were completely restored and uh, they're they're back to basically 1911.
0: Patience and fortitude are made of what's known as Tennessee
4: pink marble, right? Right, Tennessee pink marble which was chosen uh, for the color and the texture and also durability. It's a stone that was used because of its durability.
0: But when you look at them they don't look pink.
4: They don't look pink. Um, during the restoration, it was possible to see when they were it's more of the ex, in, uh, interior of the uh, some of the areas that were being restored was visible. You could see a, a more pink-like flesh tones. Sometimes in the rain, or um, if the light is just right, there really is a pink, more of a blush than a than a real uh, tone or color.
0: A little trivia here, and I'm not sure if you're aware of the history, but the marble that these lines are made of is also used on sections of the floor at Grand Central Terminal.
4: I did not know that. Now I do. <laughs> That's a, No, and then I'm sure for the same reason, you know, because of the because of the durability and the color as well. Do you know whose decision it was to put lions outside of the library? The architects of the library, Carrere and Hastings, uh, were involved in almost every element of the uh, decoration of the, of the library and designed most of it. They, uh, hired uh, another American sculptor, Augustus St. Godens um, and Daniel Chester French, both important sculptors. And French had been Potter's uh, teacher, actually. And they chose the sculpture for the exterior of the library and selected the, the sculptors to, to execute it. So it was St. It was, uh, Godens and, um, and Daniel Chester French were very much involved in the selection of the sculpture. Do you know the dimensions? Just how big are these lions? They're big. (laughs) I do not know the dimensions. But uh, uh, they're certainly uh, probably double life-size. And actually, that was part of the criticism uh, when they were installed in 1911. They were too large. They were disproportionate with the building. But... um, And they were described as being mealy-mouthed cats and all sorts of things like that. But um, they have grown, I think, with the stature of the library, they have grown to to represent that as well.
0: And they're so well-behaved, all of this construction noise behind us, and (laughs) neither of them have flinched. That's right,
4: that's right. And it's a real testimony to the, because they are... Uh, they 've been uh, decorated for for years and years decorated at various times of the year for certain uh, different parades in the city and actually the the conservatives who did the restoration in two thousand and four recommended that that be not done anymore because it allows moisture to collect on the stone and then Freezing and cooling can cause damage, but so they're, they have survived magnificently.
0: I was going to say, patience and fortitude have a great front-row seat here to many of New York City's famed
4: parades. They do, and certainly many of the, the most important events in the city takes place uh, right in this at this intersection, and uh, it's one of course one of the busiest intersections in the in the world. So yeah, they have front front-row seats. Clayton, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you.
0: Clayton Kirking is the New York Public Library's Chief of Art Information Resources. Finally today, another segment on Lambs. The Lambs Club is said to be the nation's first professional theatrical club. It's based in Manhattan. Mark Barron is the vice president of the group, also known as The Boy. I caught up with him earlier this week.
5: The president is the shepherd. The vice president is the boy. And you also have a collie on your team, right? Uh, The collie is a person who, who produces a particular entertainment event. So that's the only time we use that and all the members are considered part of the flock and the fold, which is the clubhouse. But the Lamb started in London in, 1870, in 1868. It was actually named in honor of Charles Lamb. Charles was a writer. A lot of people still study his annotations on Shakespeare. When he was alive, he used to invite actors down to his home to talk shop at a time when actors were not welcome in the public venue. And years after he died, Some actors decided to form a supper club and they named it after Charles Lamb. And that was officially in 1868 in London. Then Henry Montague, also known as Harry Montague, was an actor. He came to New York in the summer of 1874, missed the club so much that he decided to form the Lambs of New York. And we were actually formed in the week of Christmas in 1874 and then incorporated in New York in 1877.
0: Making the Lambs Club the oldest professional theatrical club in the United States of America.
5: Correct. Uh, there are only several theatrical clubs or organizations older than us. I think Hasty Pudding is your older than that. I think there's one in Russia, too. So we're probably one of the oldest theatrical organizations in the world but our official title, the Oldest Professional Theatrical. where We are similar to the Players Club and to the Friars Club, but we're the oldest of the three.
0: Let me point out that we are now at your headquarters on West 51st Street in Manhattan.
5: We are a member of a building of several private clubs. We have the fifth floor. We call it the clubhouse or the fold. And uh, our quarters include a small black box theater, rehearsal spaces for members, pool room, lots of artwork, archives. Members just come up here and hang out. Within the building, there are hotel rooms members can rent. There is a pub. You can get breakfast, lunch, and dinner. In fact, all day today, we're having a big St. Patrick's Day parade, special prices. And all on the walls, you have memorabilia, and you have artwork. For example, one of the things that a tradition of the lambs has been, when you are elected the president of the shepherd, your portrait is painted. We have every portrait of every shepherd ever. There are now 34 of them. One of them decided not to have its portrait done. He had a a bronze bust done. And on March 23rd, we'll unveil the current shepherd's portrait. His name is Randy Phillips. He's an actor. so our traditions continue.
0: This is not the original home of the Lambs Club. The Lambs once met downtown, right, at the original Delmonico's Blue Room?
5: That was where we formed on that Christmas week in 1874, in the original Delmonicos, which was then in Union Square, which was the heart of the theater district back then, which is why the players formed in that area, because they were close to the theater district. The Lambs, however, moved with the theater district. We actually were a wandering club for a lot of years. From 1874 until 1905, we met in various restaurants. One has still got a room named after us, and that's Keene's Chop House on 38th Street. Upstairs is called the Lamb's Room, because that used to be where we met. We've been in the current location since 1973. Prior to that, you were in the West 40s. West 44th Street. We had our own building that was built by Stanford White, and that is now currently being gutted and renovated to become a boutique hotel.
0: Like all clubs, the Lamb's Club has rules, and there was a time when women
5: weren't allowed in this group. In almost every private club, there were no women allowed. We let our women in. uh, We're getting conflicting data. It was about 1970. Women were allowed to come in as guests, but they weren't allowed to join because it was a men's club, and men like to hang out here and smoke cigarettes and cigars and play pool and talk men talk.
0: (laughs) Who have been among the most notable members of the Lambs
5: Club through the years? Come over. I'll show you. (laughs) Here we're looking at a very widescreen photo taken in 1925. One of the things the LAMBS has done in its history to raise money is put on these big shows called Gambles. Some of them are huge. This one here was in the Metropolitan Opera House. One of them was so huge it went on a, on a train ride all over the United States and entertained people. So here we're looking at 1925. Here are some of the members. There's W.C. Fields, there's uh, Victor Herbert. John Philip Sousa, and this young guy here who joined joined, uh, Fred Astaire. (laughs) And Fred Astaire is one of our favorite uh, comments. When he joined the club, he said he felt he was knighted. And members of the Lambs historically have been so involved in the making of what we call today Americans' entertainment field. Lambs were involved in the forming of Actors' Equity, of the Actors' Fund, of ASCAP, and Screen Actors' Guild. Talk to me about the performances the Lambs have put on through the years. Has anything stuck that we would know about in popular culture? Okay, there's two good stories there. One is the play *Stalag 17. That first saw light of the day at the Lambs, and it was put on on our old theater. Lerner and Lowe met at the Lambs Club and worked on a lot of their projects there in the rooms. In fact, when Fred Lowe died, he left our foundation a piece of his share of Brigadoon. So we have quite a history, and today we still do that. We have this little performance space. Some of our members are writers, and we will do the readings of their projects and the work. That's probably good examples, those two. And anything else along the walls that you would want to point out before we go? Well, we could talk about the nudes. (laughs) The nudes, eh? (laughs) When we were an all-male club, one of the things we would do when we would do one of these large gambles, some of our artist residents would do these paintings, and you can see everyone there's a nude with lambs or sheep or something in it and then he that would become the program cover of the gamble the souvenir cover and then they would donate those paintings to the club and we have many of them they're quite valuable but the one here has an interesting story it is a um, fairly busty one and that's done by the painter who did the uncle sam wants you poster james montgomery flag and for some reason, when he originally hung her on the walls at the old club, many wives complained. So our board of directors, we call the council, uh, asked and demanded the artist cover her up, and, and he did. And when our historian was restoring some of these paintings, he did not know that history. So he, what have found out was that the artist covered up his oil painting with watercolor. And when our historian cleaned her down, he basically brought her back to the original artist's version, so she's now topless. So you can see there are the two pictures comparing what they look like. That is a great story. Such history right here at the Lance yeah. Club. Who knew? Another great story was attributed to John Barrymore. He was sitting at the bar and a little drunk and talking wildly, waving his cane, and in one fell swoop, he wiped off every bar and every glass off the top of the, you know, every, every bottle and every glass off the top of the bar. And so the club kicked him out. He was put out, out for three months. When he came back to the club, Somebody saw them and said, we haven't seen you around. Where have you been? He said, oh, they kicked me out. And he said, what did you do? And he goes, all I did was this. And he took his cane and did it again. (laughs) Mark, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Mark Barron is the vice president of the Lambs Club in Manhattan, the nation's oldest professional theatrical club. The club's online at the-lambs.org. We hope you enjoyed this week's Lions and Lambs themed show as we close out March and welcome in spring. I'm George Bodarkey. My thanks
5: to producer Andrew Hirschman. Have a great weekend.